I remember when I discovered that with Christmas carols, we had all as a family memorized Away in a Manger, and then we were supposed to do a special program at church, and we sang the first verse, and we all did well, and then we started into the second verse, and the whole congregation was singing something totally different than we had learned. And um, it was, it was, um, it was, it was, as he says, it was, it was like just this, something's wrong here. But I do see why people sometimes do change words. Huh? I've done it. So I understand sometimes why they do it. Please take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings 17. Last week we learned about the great king of Assyria and we learned about the is Israel's captivity in 722 B.C. Well, this morning we're going to get a little bit of a broader overview of history and learn some additional details. If I could get my timeline up on the screen, it's coming, it's coming. It's, um, Israel has had a long history, and if we think about it, the nation of Israel goes way back to Abraham in its promised form, and then in its very theocratic form was established in the days of Moses with the giving of the law and then the settling of the promised land under Joshua. And then you remember that there were kings, Saul being the first, rejected of God, then David, his neighbor, was made king, anointed king in his stead. And then he had Solomon. And after Solomon, the kingdom divided, didn't it? The northern kingdom, which we call Israel, or sometimes Ephraim, or sometimes the ten tribes, or sometimes the northern kingdom, Israel had Rehoboam, or Jeroboam, as their king. And the southern two tribes, or the southern kingdom, or the kingdom of Judah, was where Rehoboam was king. And you remember that at this time, there was a great idolatry introduced into the land. For Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, disregarded the very foundation of God's law disregarded the Ten Commandments, which said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath. No graven image. And he chose to make a golden calf. And generation after generation after generation worshipped this golden calf. And Hannah was right last week. What did he call this calf? Do you remember? Hannah, what did he call it? Jehovah. We're going to read today in 2 Kings chapter 17 the climax of this failure of Jeroboam, his legacy being who made Israel to sin. According to prophecy, 
as is recorded by Hosea in his 10th chapter. These golden calves were carried away into captivity with the people. They were carried away to the king of Assyria. Now, some of you might be like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I thought that these golden calves existed all the way till the days of Josiah. And in the days of Josiah, king of Judah, they were destroyed. Well, you'll be right. So we will take the prophecy to be true that they were carried away to Assyria, and we will take the statement that Josiah dealt with them 300 years after Jeroboam set them up to also be true, which means that they were either rebuilt or they went into captivity in Assyria and they came back to the nation of Israel. These golden calves of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Here we see our timeline. And the time where we're at now is sometime after 722 B.C., The nation of Israel is carried away captive. For the most part, the land has been deserted. But you know the Assyrians had a strategy. The Assyrians had a strategy to keep the lands that they conquered in check. And what they would do is they would mix up the people. They would take people from one region, and they would move them to a different region. And then they would take some of the people from that region and they'd move them over to this region, and they would force this massive, empire-wide, you might say, integration of the peoples, to force them to depart from their customs and their practices and their laws, created a mixed people of all these different nations and lands. And What we learn about here in 2 Kings chapter 17 is the beginning of a people group that we, from this point in history forward, refer to as the Samaritans. You've heard of the Samaritans, haven't you? There's a few famous Samaritans. Well, here's one in John chapter 4. John chapter 4, Jesus and his disciples met a very famous Samaritan. You see, in the days of Jesus, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And there were a lot of reasons for this. It wasn't just because they weren't pure-blooded Jews, because most Jews aren't pure-blooded Jews. That wasn't really the reason. The reason is is that the Samaritans used their background and their history to sometimes um, do that which was good and sometimes to just defend themselves. See, here if we look at the the tribes of Israel, we we see Judah would be in the southern part down here, and and Samaria, the city, sits right in this area here. See with the Salt Sea here and the Sea of Galilee up here? And in the time of Jesus, down here, this was called Judea. Up here, this was called Galilee. In this area here, was called the Decapolis. And in this area right here was called Samaria. It was a region, not just a city. And in the days of Jesus, Jews frequently went from Judah up to Galilee. 
And the obvious way to do that would be to just travel right here along the Jordan Valley and on up to Galilee, or even to travel up on this side on up to Galilee. There were lots of really good, convenient routes through Samaria to get to Galilee. But see, the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. And so they would rather go over into the Gentile region, the Decapolis. They would cross over the Jordan River, which was very inconvenient, and they would travel up north until they got past the Samaritans, and then they would cross the Jordan River again to go into Galilee. Very inconvenient. But they did this because they didn't like the Samaritans. Now, there's a long history as to why they didn't like the Samaritans. I'll give you a little bit of it because there's another very famous Samaritan that you might not realize was a Samaritan. When the children of Israel, particularly those of Judah, began to come back from captivity in Babylon, remember Nehemiah? Do you all remember Nehemiah? He was one who was appointed by the king to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Did Nehemiah have some enemies? Yes. Do you remember the enemy named Sambalat? Was he a friend? Was he a friend? No, 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 no. Sambalat was a Samaritan. Sambalat was a Samaritan, and it was the start of a lot of the conflict and relationships between Israel and the Samaritan people. In the intertestament period, I wonder, William, do you know what I mean when I say the intertestament period? Let's see. If you know what that means, could you raise your hand? Okay, some of you do. Intertestament means that the period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. There's about 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there's a lot of history that took place during that time that we don't have a historical record of, but we actually have a prophetic record of a lot of it, which is really actually very exciting to think that um, we don't have an inspired historical record, but we actually have an inspired record of what would happen. It's really exciting. But there's lots of things that took place in that time period. And some of what took place is that there were foreign kings that would come into the land and cause a lot of trouble in this land. And you know these Samaritans? When the Jews were in favor with the Greeks or with the Romans, the Samaritans would all say, we're Jews, we're Jews, we're Jews. And in a sense, they were Jews. They did have Jewish blood. But if the Jews were out of favor with the Greeks or with the Romans or with anyone, all of a sudden, the Samaritans would say, oh, no, 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 we're not Jews. And so they would go back and forth. And in fact, during some of the oppression of Antiochus Epiphanes, remember him? This is the week of Hanukkah right now. And Antiochus Epiphanes was the guy who um, brought about a lot of the events that resulted in the holiday of the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. And... Um, it were the Samaritans during that time actually joined up with Antiochus Epiphanes to persecute the Jewish people. The Samaritans would say, oh yes, we, we will take our sacred temple, which was right here that the Samaritan woman was talking about with Jesus. 
She actually had gotten to a religious dispute, you might say, with Jesus about where to worship. And he, she, you know, she made the comment that the Jews say you worship in Jerusalem, and we Samaritans say you worship here in Mount Gerizim. And, um, but, you know, she, she kind of distracted because it was getting a little too personal, and so she brought up that, that theological debate to distract from the personal part. And Jesus brilliantly responded to her and says that the day is coming when they will neither worship in Jerusalem nor in this hill, even though he acknowledged that salvation is of the Jews at that time in history. And then that, that was the system that was in place in God's dispensation of that time. He, he, he said that the time comes that man will worship God in spirit and in truth and won't be at Mount Gerizim or at Mount Zion. But at Mount Gerizim, they had this temple, you know, just up on a hill outside of Samaria. And when Antiochus Epiphanes was called in all of his trouble, you know what? They actually went to him and invited him to come to Mount Gerizim and to set up in their temple an idol to Zeus and to offer sacrifices to this idol. Which is really interesting because by the time of Jesus, the Samaritans would have nothing to do with idols. Which is interesting because when they started off, as we're going to learn today, they had a lot to do with idols. But they, 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 were, they did these kinds of things, which is why we can now understand why, by the time of Jesus, they would go across the Jordan River, go north, and cross the Jordan River twice just to avoid the Samaritans because the relationship was terribly strained. Well, in 2 Kings chapter 17, we learn about the history of where the Samaritan people came from. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But I'd like to tell you about another famous Samaritan. Do you remember this one? So people asked Jesus when Jesus spoke about loving your neighbor, and they carelessly, casually, sarcastically asked, well, who's my neighbor? And then Jesus tells a story about a Samaritan. That didn't go over very well with the Jews, because the Jews, the last people they wanted to consider their neighbor was a Samaritan. And Jesus actually tells the story of a Samaritan who actually does right in helping one who was robbed and terribly hurt. So we have these Samaritans. You know, in the days of Nehemiah, they pop up. They pop up in significance in the Intertestament period. And then we find them all through the New Testament, eventually coming to the days when the gospel of Jesus Christ under the evangelist Philip, came to the Samaritans. And that's a really exciting event. But it was hard for some Jews. It was hard for some Jews. And it had to do with this strange history relating to these Samaritan peoples. So what was the situation here? Well, before we dive into 2 Kings chapter 17, I'd, I'd like to tell you about a little bit more history that's going on. If we look here at our timeline, do you see the yellow line coming down through? Do you see it coming down through? The captivity has taken place up there in, um, in Israel. They've been carried away captive. But follow the yellow line down to the southern kingdom. We're in the reign of Hezekiah. And actually, you notice that quite a bit of Hezekiah's reign has already taken place. 
We're going to get into the life of Hezekiah and, and his reign later and go into it in detail. But there's a little detail you need to know about before we learn about what happens in 2 Kings 17. And that's recorded for us over in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. You see, when Hezekiah became king, he was totally unlike his father. His father was the worst king of all Judah, the worst king. Hezekiah comes, and his description of him is that he was unlike any of his fathers. He was a godly, righteous king. For many years, the temple had been neglected. In fact, the temple had been ransacked. The temple vessels had been salvaged for their gold and their silver and their bronze. The temple had really, in a sense, been spoiled by his father Ahaz. But when Hezekiah became king, he went about the work of restoring the temple, and not just restoring the temple, but restoring the pure worship of Jehovah. And one of the most exciting parts of worshiping Jehovah in those days was the celebration of the Passover feast. And Hezekiah was really excited about doing this. It had been years since the Passover had been observed. Years. And so they began to cleanse the temple and to prepare for the Passover. And you know what? They couldn't do it on time. So they delayed it and they postponed it by a whole month, which is fascinating because that happens to happen several times throughout history. And um, actually, in the very beginning when it was first established, it was an issue. And so Hezekiah is preparing to celebrate the Passover feast. Now remember, Hezekiah is only king over these two tribes down here in the south, Judah and, and Simeon. That, that's the place where he's king. But you know what? The whole nation is supposed to celebrate Passover, aren't they? So you think Hezekiah is going to say, well, no, nah, I'm not going to invite all them northern ten tribes, those rebels up there. We're just going to have the Passover by ourselves here in Judah. No, Hezekiah knew the Passovers for the whole nation of Israel. So he decided he was going to invite them to the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And it's recorded for us all the details. Oh, there's actually several chapters here. But I want to bring to you, to your attention, the, the, the basic part of, of this letter. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, it says that Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. And it goes through some of the details of the plans of all of this. And, um, and so it tells us in, verse, um, in, in verse, verse 5, so they established a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel, all Israel, from Beersheba even to Dan. You know where Beersheba is? Well, if I were to hold my map up here, Beersheba is down here, way far south. And you know where Dan is? way up here. So this proclamation is supposed to go from Beersheba to Dan. Well, guess what? That's the whole land, isn't it? Beersheba 
to Dan, this proclamation is to go out. That's the plan, isn't it? And, and so, it, it tells us that they should come and keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem, for they had not done so for a long time in such sort as it was written. So the post went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah according to the commandment of the king, saying, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. And be ye not like your fathers and like your brethren which transgressed, trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to desolation, as ye see. Now, Hezekiah and the princes write, be ye not stiff-necked, as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary, which he has sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead them captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if ye return unto him. And so this proclamation is going out, calling upon the nation of Israel, even in the midst of their, disper their dispersion throughout the nations, those that are remaining in the land, and there's not many of them, come, come, come to Jerusalem, observe the Passover, turn to God. And so it tells us, the posts passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even to Zebulun. That's the tribal lot up north. The plan has gone forth. Now look here at the end of this verse. Look at it. Verse 10, 2 Chronicles 30, 10. But they laughed them <laughs> to scorn and mocked them. That's how they handled the invite. The invite to worship the Lord. They laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Nevertheless, this is very important, verse 11. Divers of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Also in Judah, the hand of God was to give them a heart to do the commandment of the king and of the princes by the word of the Lord. Don't miss verses 11 and 12. You may read or hear of these supposed ten lost tribes of Israel. It's not true. Even in the New Testament times of Jesus, we find still people from these northern tribes. Anna the prophetess, Christmas time, the one who held met Jesus in the temple, was from the tribe of Asher, one of these supposed said to be lost tribes, not lost. There you see an evidence of it. And here's one of the pieces of where you see some people. It's very likely that these people who humbled themselves and came down to Judah and Jerusalem, many of them moved, moved down and continued for generations to come in Jerusalem. But do you see these here that laughed them to scorn? These are those who in this northern kingdom up here no longer a kingdom of this region up here. They laughed them to scorn. 
And now think with me and turn back to 2 Kings 17. For we learn more of what's going on in that northern kingdom. For the king of Assyria brought men from Babylon and from Kutha and from Ava and from Hamath and from Serathavim and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they possessed Samaria and dwelt in the cities thereof. Here we see this map, again, of this nation of Assyria. Over here you can see the Salt Sea, the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, the Mediterranean Sea here. You see these lines running here? The red lines here show the carrying away of where all the children of Israel, or not all of them, many of them were carried away captive too. And then it shows where many were carried from other lands as captives and put into Samaria. Um, again, this map you can see back. Um, I have the book of this in the back if you wanted to look at it closer and see all of the details. And so you see this, this migration of peoples all that took place. And so it was, verse 25, at the beginning of their dwelling there that they feared not the Lord. The rest of this chapter is a lesson for all of us on what it means to fear the Lord. That phrase actually occurs over and over and over again. But you know what's fascinating? Apart from this one and then the ones at the end, it's not talking about real fear of the Lord. It's talking about a made-up fear of the Lord, which is worse than... You'll see what I mean as we go on. We have a people here now who don't fear the Lord. They don't serve the Lord. And the Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Who wants to be my lion? Who wants to be a lion? Micaiah, come here. You can come up here and be my lion. Yeah, you'll be the little lion. I'll be the big lion. You're going to growl with me. Hey, put it up on your face. We're going to eat these people. How many of you are scared to go outside because a lion's going to eat you? Hmm? In the nation of Israel at this time, that's exactly what was going on. Who else wants to be my other lion? Nobody? I have one more. Who wants to be it? Well, this isn't a girl lion, but you want to be a girl lion? Come on, come on, come on. See, girl lions don't have this fancy mane. Now, you have to do something. If you're going to be a lion, you have to growl. Can you growl? Yeah. Yeah. That one's scary. So here we are, these lions. And what's it say? The Lord sent lions among them, which slew some of them. Are you going to go out there and attack any of those people? Oh, no. Well, that's what the lions did here. They went out and they attacked the people and they slew some of them. Well, you know... We nowadays, we pride ourselves as not being superstitious. 
How many of you pride yourself in not being superstitious? Oh, come on, be honest. You may not pride yourself in it, but you, 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 you do. And you might read this and you say, those superstitious people. And you might call them superstitious, but look what the Holy Spirit inspired in this record. The Holy Spirit said that the Lord sent among them these lions. So their superstition was kinda right. Just kinda. And so these people were really concerned about these lions. And so they sent a message to the king of Assyria. They spake to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations which thou hast removed and placed in the cities of Samaria know not the manner of the God of the land. Therefore he hath sent lions among them, and behold, they slay them, because they know not the manner of the God of the land. Now, this is a different part of the superstition part. This would be a part that you would say, yes, I'm not superstitious in that way. But yet then again, what were these people saying? They knew that something was wrong here. Something was beyond just natural here. And they were right because this was already prophesied years before. Back in Leviticus, God says, And if you walk contrary to me and will not hearken unto me, I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children and destroy your cattle and make you few in number, and your highways shall be desolate. Now, this is pretty hard now. We've, we don't know how much time has passed in this. Um, some people think that it's a number of years, actually, and that there's even a new generation that's rising up at this time. Um, but we don't know that. It could have happened within a year, very quickly. This could have happened. As the, popula the population of people had been decreased dramatically, the population of lions increased dramatically, and it takes time to move thousands of people across country in these situations. And so this is all taking place. And the lions are causing a lot of trouble. So these people, they, they, they are convinced that the reason is that they do not know the God of the land. And in a little teeny, weeny, weeny, weeny way, they're right. So the king of Assyria, he's got a plan. Yes. Shall I be the king of Assyria today? Yes. The king of Assyria, he has a plan, and so he makes a command. Carry thither one of the priests whom ye brought from thence, and let them go and dwell there, and let him teach them the manner of the God of the land. How many of you think this was a good idea? Christopher thinks it's a good idea. You know, I don't know. I'm undecided. I'm still undecided. <laughs> In a way, I wish I think it's a good idea. If, if this were Hezekiah sending a priest, I'd be like, this is a great idea. If Hezekiah were the king commanding a priest to go teach them the ways of the Lord, I, I would be excited. But this isn't Hezekiah sending them a priest from Jerusalem. This is the king of Assyria sending to them one of their priests. You remember who their priests are? The priests 
who served in the false worship of the golden calf they called Jehovah. The people did not fear God. Lions come among them. They complain to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria tells them to bring one of the priests back to them. So it tells in verse 28, Then one of the priests, whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and dwelt in... Oh, no. It doesn't say that, does it? Bethel! And taught them how, to fear the, how they should fear the Lord. In Bethel? Huh. Did he teach them to fear the Lord? Well, it tells us in the men of Babylon, so we have people from Babylon now living in Israel, marrying the Jews who are there in that land. They made Sakath Binoth. Who? What's that? Well, it's not a town. Uh, it's a tent. It's a dwelling place for an idol. Wait a minute. I thought there was a priest here teaching them how to fear the Lord. So what are the Babylonians doing now? Making an idol in the new land. And, and oh, let's see. And the men of Kuth. Oh, uh, they made Nergel. Well, what's that? Another idol. Huh. And the men of Hamath made Ashima. Another idol. And the Vavites made Nibaz and Tartak. And another idol. Two of them. And the Sepharvites burnt their children in fire to Adrammelech and Anammelech, the gods of Saravaim. Oh, no. I thought this priest was teaching them to fear the Lord. Look, it says capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the name in Hebrew, Jehovah, Yahweh. Oh, no. It doesn't seem that they're fearing the Lord. Well, let's check. Verse 32, so they fear the Lord. Oh, good, but what? and made unto themselves of the lowest of them priests of the high places, which sacrifice for them in the houses of the high places? Something is wrong with how these people are being taught to fear the Lord. Oh, look at the next verse. Maybe it gets bettered. They feared the Lord. Oh, it's getting better, right? Huh? And served their own gods. 
after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day do they after the former manners. And notice this in verse 34. They fear not the Lord. You see, this priest who had come to them to teach them to fear the Lord himself didn't fear the Lord. He had invented a Lord. He had invented a Jehovah. He had invented a Yahweh. Very similar to that which Jeroboam had done. Basically, what they're doing here is the same thing that Jeroboam did so long ago. Jeroboam built the golden calves, which were reminiscent of another golden calf that was built by Aaron. Remember that one? By the way, Aaron called his golden calf Jehovah too. Aaron called his golden calf, these, he said, be the gods which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. The golden calves were modeled after idols in Egypt. And they were made by Aaron and called Jehovah, and they were made by Jeroboam and called Jehovah. And now do you see what they're doing? They're taking in all of these idols from all of these places, even the diabolical idols of human sacrifice, child sacrifice, the murdering of children to idols, and they're treating it as if it is Jehovah. They haven't learned what the real fear of the Lord is. Just as it said at the beginning, they feared not the Lord, and then it says here that they feared not the Lord. Now, some people look at this and they say, well, there's contradictions in the Bible. No, it's not a contradiction in the Bible. It's that there is God's definition of how he's to be served and feared. And then there was this priest's definition. And then there were all the other people group's definition of what it meant to fear the Lord. They were inventing religions. Thank you, guys. We don't know what happened to all the lions. You can keep your fate, lion face if you want. Here, you want another one so you can, you can play lion with your sister? Just don't eat her. What is the fear of the Lord? These people here all, even the record, it's, it's almost as if God and the Holy Spirit in the, inspiring this record is, is trying to make a point to all who would read it. Fear of the Lord is not just something you invent because of some God you made up. Look how he continues on here. Verse 33 they feared the Lord, quote-unquote, and served their own gods after the manner of the nations whom they carried away from thence. Unto this day do they after the former manners. They fear not the Lord. Neither do they after their statutes. Who are their statutes? This is a reference to the fact that this is a people group. It is a mixed people group of the Jews and these other nations. It's a reference back to their statutes, as we will find out. 
that were given to them by Moses from God. His statutes. But they did not after them, nor after their ordinances or after the law and commandments which the Lord commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant and charged them, saying, Ye shall not fear other gods, nor bow yourselves to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a stretched out arm, him shall ye fear, and him shall ye worship, and to him shall ye do sacrifice. And the statutes and the ordinances of the law and of the commandment which he wrote for you, ye shall observe to do forevermore. And ye shall not fear other gods. And the commandment that I have made with you, ye shall not forget. Neither shall ye fear other gods. But the Lord, that is Jehovah, your God, ye shall fear. And he shall deliver you out of the hand of all your enemies. Howbeit, they did not hearken. But they did after their former manner. <sighs> they didn't hear. They didn't heed. They no they didn't really fear the Lord. And to drive the sermon home, look with me at the last verse of the chapter. So these nations feared the Lord. Back to, I, I think, sarcasm. Mm. And served their God, graven images, both their children and their children's children, as did their fathers, so do they unto this day. Mm. Last week, we touched on it a little bit. But what is your religion? Do you call yourself a Christian? Do you call yourself a Christian the way that these people are described as saying they fear the Lord? Did these people really fear the Lord? No. The, the, the whole sermon makes that point. Yes, they were being taught to fear the Lord, but it wasn't the real Lord. It was their own gods. It was themselves. It's what they invented. We must be careful that we don't invent our own God. We have to be careful that our religion, our faith, is based upon the sure foundation of the revealed Word of God as God has revealed Himself. And our ideas and our concepts of who God is and how God interacts with me and what God wants of me must be in accord with what God has said. In fact, that's what part of the sermon is here to these people. 
they, they, the, the, whoever it was that God inspired to write this record calls them out for their false, fake fear of the Lord. Calls them out for it. And you notice even in that, he points them back to what they had. Did you notice that? He points them back to the scriptures. I mean, let's just get really basic and go to just the Ten Commandments. The fear of the Lord in hearing and obeying and keeping the Ten Commandments totally undermines everything that they were doing. Just, just the Ten Commandments, let alone the whole rest of the law of God that they had. Do we know God's Word? Do we know Jehovah? And do we know Him because of our culture? Do we know Him because of how popular American Christianity has defined Him? Or do we really know Him as He has revealed Himself? As He's revealed Himself according to His special his special, specific revelation. Oh, we need to be careful that all of our thoughts and ideas and philosophies of God are filtered through, sifted through what God has revealed himself in his word. Let's not be guilty of the Samaritan's false religion. This situation continued for several hundred years. Sometime in the intertestament period, a lot of things happened that caused the Samaritans to get rid of their idols, which you would say is a good thing. They actually began to hold and to preach and to teach, but only the books of Moses, the five books of Moses. But yet even in the times of Jesus, they kind of considered themselves the real Judaism, but even in that day, Jesus called them out that what their religion was was not genuine. Even though they had shed the idolatry, they had shed the child sacrifice and gotten rid of that, even still by that time, they still had a religion that was their own. It was very sad. So as time goes by, as we live our lives, we call ourselves Christians, right? But is our Christianity real? We talk about fearing the Lord. We've, First Peter, we've been talking about that a lot, haven't we? Do we really know what it means to fear the Lord? Or do we just make up our idea and concept of what it means so that we can just kind of coast through it? I don't think we have lions roaring in our streets to wake us up. But will the record inspired here cause us to be serious in how we view life? Will you, will you consider how you view God and spend time here confirming that it's biblical? And in that, I mean true as God has revealed himself. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you 
that you are the Word. We thank you for our Bibles, your revealed and preserved Word, in which we can know definitive facts and truths about you, and not only about you, but that it is living and alive, can be a source of life because you are life. Lord God, may we see in our own lives and our own thoughts those things that are not in accord with your word. And may we be humble, as some were in the northern kingdom, to humble themselves and seek you. Lord, our adversary, he has wiles, he is the father of lies. He's all about deception. May your spirit unite with our spirit that we may identify the falsehoods and the lies that he may throw at us. The rationalizations we may give, the perspectives and falsehoods of our culture and society Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Father God, work in our hearts and minds and through your word that our faith, our religion, our relationship with you might be real, genuine, and true. We thank you so much that you have revealed and given us your word, your spirit, that we can discern these things. Help us in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.